Nathan only thinks he heard this in the past because we're going to have a little different emphases. But you cannot imagine my utter relief at seeing all of you here alive after the whitewater rafting trip. Uh, I could only have imagined that the angels were taking out life insurance policies on each of you. So um, this today is going to be less a lecture than a content-intensive sermon. So um, if you have your Bibles, and by the way, it's always appropriate to have your Bible. It's not wrong to have your Bibles, even on your handheld digital devices. You might want to turn to Daniel. I'm going to read several verses there. My uh, assigned topic, which is not identical to my actual topic, (laughs) is prayer, covenant, and the nations. But have no fear, I will address all of those things. My subtitle is The Blazing Glory of the Ascended Lord. Almost the entire movement of Western thought and life over the last 200 years has been inward, inward. Sometimes it's called the inward turn. Some people call it interiorization. Whether it's romanticism or existentialism or modernism or postmodernism, the so-called report from the interior is what's important to most of today's world. In the ancient medieval world and during the early years of the Enlightenment, the important thing was the objective world. God or the gods, sacred authoritative texts like the Bible, the heavenly bodies, which pagans often worshipped, the weather, the climate, which many people feared, and the church and priests. This has all changed The external world is not that important. Or better put, the external world is important in that it is a sort of plastic reality that man can mold. It's the human thought and imagination and intuition that are important. History and the external world are the media within which men paint their own reality. Unfortunately, much of Christianity has fallen into this way of thinking and uh, simply given it a Christian veneer. Most Christians know the Bible strongly stresses the heart, but they have reduced the Christian faith to the heart and to the internal. And make no mistake, according to the Bible, the heart is vitally important. There can be no genuine Christianity without a heart turned toward God. Everything begins with a heart's relationship to God. But as we noted last week, in the Bible, the emphasis, the emphasis is not so much on the human heart, but on human history. It's about what God is accomplishing externally in the world as a result of his internal work and among his visible people. If God is only interested in the human heart, the Bible would be a lot smaller, and it would be a very different kind of book. It wouldn't be talking about the creation of all things, and the calling and history of the Jews, and their relationship to the other nations, 
and it wouldn't contain all of the genealogies, and the Son of God born into human history and dying a sacrificial death and rising again in a body, and the establishment of churches in history, and all the way at the end of Revelation, God's judgment in human history and victory over the forces of evil. If you think about it, the Bible is basically a divine history book. Some people use the term redemptive historical. Essentially, the Bible is creational and redemptive history. That's what the Bible is. Inspired, infallible, creational, redemptive history. God, therefore, is intensely interested in the world, the physical world, his people, as well as the nations, and the expansion of his kingdom in very visible, documentable, pinchable, tactile ways. Now, one place we see that most clearly and where we detect a number of these vital truths is in the book of Daniel. So if you're there in the book of Daniel, I'm not going to read a lot. In fact, I'm going to read several verses and then sort of explain what's going on here and make some application. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 in Daniel 7, and then 13 and 14, and then 26 and 27. I'll indicate that as we go along. Uh, Daniel, of course, is relating a vision here. Most of the first part of Daniel is all about visions. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Now verses 13 and 14. I watched, excuse me, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And now finally, verses 26 and 27 toward the end of the chapter. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his, it's referring to the little horns, I'll get to that in a minute, dominion, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Daniel is prophesying of his own days and up to about 600 years into the future. Daniel is not prophesying of what we today call the last days. He was not prophesying about our own days or the days following ours. In this particular vision, Daniel saw the four great ancient, ancient empires. There are really five, but he doesn't mention Egypt. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The vision depicts them as four beasts. Remember, this is a vision, much like John had one later. The final beast, the Roman Empire, is the most wide-ranging and ruthless Daniel then sees from the fourth beast uh, ten horns and a little horn, he says. These horns are, in my view, in the view of other thinkers, the Caesars and the lineage of the Caesars and the Roman Empire. 
uh, the Roman Senate. The little horn is likely the Greek usurper. Some of you might have studied this. Antiochus Epiphanes, who just savaged the Jews. This is a striking prophecy, and it was fulfilled right down to the letter. Remember, Daniel is prophesying several hundred years before Jesus Christ was ever born. The accuracy of this prophecy, the accuracy of this prophecy resembles the accuracy of Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's so accurate, in fact, that liberal Old Testament scholars claim that this can't be a prophecy. That actually someone several hundred years after Daniel described what they had seen and then put this in Daniel's mouth as though he had prophesied it. That's how accurate this is. They're wrong, of course. It certainly is a prophecy, but they're correct as to the accuracy of its fulfillment. These prophecies authenticate the word of God. Now, amid this vision of earthly empires, Daniel sees a vision of movement between heaven and earth in verse 13. This is one of the most important texts of the Old Testament, like Genesis 3.15. He sees one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Now, who in the world are the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days? Well, we know from the New Testament that the Son of Man is none other than Jesus Christ. He referred to himself as the Son of Man explicitly invoking Daniel's language. In Isaiah 43, 13, God identified himself as the one of ancient days. The ancient of days is God the Father. Daniel sees the Son of Man ascending on the clouds to the heavenly throne of God the Father. This quite clearly is referring to the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he spoke to the disciples gave the final what we call the Great Commission, and ascended out of their sight. This is referring not to his descent at the future second advent. Make no mistake, there will be a future physical second advent. But that is not what Daniel is talking about here. It refers to his ascent after his first advent. And we learn something truly remarkable from this text, and I hope you never forget it. When Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens to, this, to his Father, he ascended to take his throne. Amen. Now, you might have noticed something perplexing in verses 9 and 10. There we read that thrones are established and the Ancient of Days is seated. It sounds like God the Father himself is being seated on the throne. But wait a minute, isn't God always ruling? The Old Testament teaches our God reigns perpetually, eternally. Of course he does. God the Father did not at some point begin to reign. He always reigned. So what is this talking about? John Calvin makes the moving point that God is reaffirming his own rulership in preparation for his son Jesus Christ who will soon be joining him. Oh, I'm standing up because my son is coming and he's going to join me in my reign. There's a heavenly court surrounding them. All of the Lord's angels and emissaries and counselors are there. They're preparing for a formal coronation. How many of you here have been to Westminster Abbey in London and seen the famous coronation chair? Hope you can go if you haven't been there. This is the great royal chair on which many, not all, but many British kings and queens sat as they were coronated. Near the chair, boldly emblazoned, I'll never forget it. Above the chair is Revelation 11.15. 15. 
The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Can you imagine British royalty, certainly in recent decades, secular, having to look at that (laughs) at their coronation? 2,000 years ago in heaven, the Ancient of Days was preparing for Jesus Christ's coronation chair. When Jesus Christ ascended to the heavenly throne room, the angels and the emissaries brought the Son before the Father, and the Son was formally installed, formally installed and crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over the entire cosmos. He then sat down, waiting until all of his enemies were to be made his footstool. We also read about that this morning. Pastor Jason read the text of the Hebrews. And that's mentioned a number of times. In the light of this chapter, uh, it's imperative to understand the following truths. I'm going to mention just several of them. And then we'll be at the end. First, Jesus Christ is presently vested with all heavenly authority. And Jesus Christ will never have more authority, reigning authority, than he does today. You might have noticed something interesting in verse 9. We read a description of the Ancient of Days. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Yes, of Christ. Well, of course, God, God the Father, is a spirit, and this is a vision. But it's the same description we read of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. The ascended Lord comes to John while he's marooned on Patmos Island. Jesus gives revelation to the seven churches, and he then discloses how he will defeat, in my view, the apostate Jews and the evil Roman Empire. And Jesus looks just like the Ancient of Days does in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is precisely vested with all of the Father's ruling authority. God the Father has no more ruling authority than his son does. We learn from Daniel 7, not just that God the Father rules from heaven, but that Jesus Christ, the ascended son, rules with him equally. So when we today say our God reigns, we are equally saying Jesus Christ reigns. Second, Jesus Christ does not become king at what we call the second coming. The Bible doesn't quite use that language. It's the parousia, the appearance. He was enthroned as king after his first coming. I mean, that's just what we would expect if you were reading the Bible. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus set aside the prerogatives of his deity to come to earth. Not deity itself, but the prerogatives of deity. He became a man so that he could suffer and die for our sins. But because of his obedient death... Paul tells us that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. God has highly exalted him, not will highly exalt him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This coronation happened when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago. The reign of Jesus Christ formally began 2,000 years ago. He was king while he was walking the earth. He said that. I come as a king. But he was formally declared to be king at his ascension. 
This means that Jesus Christ is presently King of kings and Lord of lords. Peter talked of the same thing when he preached that first post-resurrection Pentecostal sermon in Acts 2. The Old Testament prophesied that a Jewish king would rule on David's throne. This was God's unbreakable promise to David. Peter tells us that the promise was fulfilled finally and definitively and forever in Jesus Christ. And Israel will have no final king. Jesus is the final definitive king. And there is no other. He's not ruling from a local throne in Jerusalem. David's throne is now in the heavenlies. Some of our dear, good, faithful, dispensational friends don't understand that, but in my view, humbly, they really need to read Acts 2 carefully. He is presently ruling Christ on David's throne, and David's throne is now in the heavens. Jesus is seated next to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, sharing in his rule. This is not a rule in a future millennium, earthly millennium. This is his present rule. It was captured poignantly in a hymn by Christopher Wordsworth. I read this uh, about three or four months ago. It just really fixed itself to my heart. This Wordsworth was the nephew of the famous British lake, uh, lake region poet William Wordsworth. The nephew was a 19th century Anglican bishop, a Bible-believing Anglican bishop, unlike almost all of the Anglican bishops today. And he wrote the hymn, See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph. And listen to his first verse. Almost no one would write a hymn with these words today. And one reason the church is so weak and effete is because it doesn't embrace this sound, gutsy, robust theology of the ascension. See the Lord ascends in triumph, conquering king in royal state, riding on the clouds, his chariot to his heavenly palace gate. Hark the choirs of angel voices, Joyful hallelujah sing, and the portals higher lifted to receive their heavenly king. He's talking about the ascension. He's not talking about the second coming. Jesus comes on the clouds of his ascension to assume his heavenly throne from which he rules the world. This happened over 2,000 years ago. Third, notice that the Father and the Son, according to Daniel, and there are other texts in the Bible that indicate this, preside over a great heavenly court. There are angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphs and a great heavenly host. They're the court's attendants. You also see this, by the way, early in the book of Job. Even Satan himself is forced to come and give an account to the Lord. People sometimes say, nothing evil could ever appear in heaven. Well, actually, I guess it could. Evil can't be committed in heaven. But even Satan and his emissaries, how sovereign is the Lord. The Satan himself must give an account to God. Oh, yeah, you can do that. I want to go tempt so-and-so. Yeah, I'll let you do that. No, you don't do that. God is sovereign. In the ancient royal courts, places of honor were positioned around royalty. The point was not that they had any dignity of themselves, these attendants at court, but they gained dignity by their proximity to the king or the emperor. This is true of heaven. These hosts sit close to God the Father in Christ and are dignified by being close to the deity, not deity themselves. More importantly, this is a court, a court, and it renders judgment, and that judgment shapes human history. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation, you know precisely what I'm talking about. John sees a vision, and God makes a declaration in heaven, and then something happens on earth. 
Now, from this we learn a vital fact. Human history is not autonomous. Human history is not chaotic. Human history is not out of control. God is governing everything that happens. This doesn't mean God forces people to do evil things. He doesn't force people to sin. But it does mean that everything that happens is under his sovereign control. Nothing that happens on earth can overturn the judgment of the court of heaven. Gives great confidence to us, the saints. God the Son, blazing in his glory, delivers the judgment. So don't be fearful today when you hear of economic hardships or conspiracies or the stock market tanking or the evils of Russia, China, the Ukraine, or even the Labor Party. Did I just say that? Or the Democratic Party. None of them can overturn God's plan. None of them can thwart the judgment of the heavenly court. None of them. Fourth, all of this means that Satan is not the rightful ruler of this world. That's a Manichaean heresy. That's an ancient heresy that many otherwise good Christian people believe. You might have heard about uh, the title of a popular book from the 70s, uh, this was back when Michael was uh, just entering old age. Uh, no, not real. <laughs> he is well preserved, my dear friend. The title of the book is Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. Well, that's only half correct. Satan is alive on planet Earth, but he's not well on planet Earth. Well, you might ask, well, if Satan's not well, why is there still so much evil. Well, that's not hard to understand. God could destroy Satan completely anytime he wants. Do you understand that? Okay. But God wants to use his people to get the victory over Satan under his authority based on the atoning work and resurrection of Jesus Christ and power of the Spirit. Just as God used his son to defeat Satan on the cross and resurrection, so he is now using his son's people to defeat Satan by the power of the blood of the Lamb. That's what Revelation says, Revelation 12. God gets the definitive victory by his son Jesus Christ, but he chooses his people to work out the implications of that victory in time and history. God rules the world. But we read in Genesis 1 that God has deputized man under his authority to rule the world for his glory. Our Lord is presently ruling from the heavens, gradually beating down his enemies, and he is using his people to do it. The world presently belongs to Jesus Christ. The Bible plainly says that. The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. Satan has no rights here. Satan has no rights here. He's a squatter on God's property. God's using us to expel Satan and his minions. Jesus didn't say that the wicked will inherit the earth, but that the meek, that means the submissive to God, will inherit the earth. We, we are the inheritors. Fifth, listen carefully to this. This is an important, vital theological truth that can sort of reshape your entire outlook on life. We are not presently serving the earthly crucified Lord Jesus. We're serving the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and ruling Lord Jesus. 
The Son of God is one person, but he has existed in three different modes. Before he came to earth, he was the eternal Son of God, sharing in glory with the Father and the Spirit. He was never created, that is an utter heresy. He is just as eternal as the Father. An eternal Father presupposes an eternal Son. The Son and the Spirit are co-equal with the Father in deity. But then the Son was incarnate as a man, as a babe in Bethlehem. That's the second mode of his existence. Same person, different mode of existence. He was a changed person. You say, really? Well, yeah, he could feel pain. He could suffer. He could die. And he did die. But when he rose and ascended, thank God, he came into his third and final mode of existence. He is now the exalted God-man. He can never again die. He has reclaimed the full prerogatives of his deity. He rules in an existence different from the Father and the Spirit. Both of them are fully spirit, but Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he always will be. Jesus rules with the comprehensive power of deity, but he exercises that deity in his present humanity, glorified humanity. This is a remarkable truth. God rules as God in the person of the man, Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully about prayer. I'm going to say a couple things about prayer. I've been asked to say about prayer, and I have been known to say things occasionally about prayer. Amen. Christians today often pray to the incarnate Jesus of the Gospels. Understandably, the Jesus who was weak and weary and carried our sins and diseases. They're enduring troubles, and they identify with the pre-ascension Jesus. They identify with his pain and his weakness and his weariness, which of itself is not wrong. <clears throat> that Jesus was equally the Son of God, but Jesus does not exist that way anymore. He lives and reigns as the Son of God, blazing in his ascended glory. The Jesus you and I pray to today is not the Jesus as he was agonizing in the garden, not the Jesus as he hung on the cross, the Jesus to whom we pray today is the ascended and ruling Lord blazing in his white-hot authority, relentlessly pressing his kingdom, beating down his enemies. That is the Jesus we pray to. And even in our weakness and sin and pain and the present life, we do presently have the resurrection power within us. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. That very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you right now. If you're a believer, that's what, that's what Paul says. That should change your prayer life, understanding that the Son is ruling and has power to do anything. Anything, not contrary to his very nature, of course. So come boldly. You know, it is remarkable how timid people's prayers are all right, Michael, I'm going to go off on a tangent. Is that okay? A tangent about prayer. Is that all right? Hang on. Carry on. It's amazing how timid and quiet and quiescent their prayer is, thinking that they're honoring the Lord. Oh, I don't want to ask too much of him. I'll just pray a little quiet prayer. Remember I told you about the tiny Tim prayers? The Lord blesses. The Lord blesses everyone as we go. 
and they have great needs. I don't mean needs for their new Lamborghini or their beachfront property, consuming things on their own lust, but great needs, physical, spiritual, emotional needs. And they don't cry out to God. And they say, oh, I couldn't come boldly, but as a matter of fact, that's what Hebrews says we're supposed to do. Come boldly. Look at the saints. Look at the prayers of Elijah. Look at the prayers of Paul. Oh, read of Elijah, praying for the little child that has died. Stretched himself on him. And the Hebrew says, basically, he cried loudly to the Lord. Cried loudly to the Lord. Somebody might think I'm fanatic if I pray loudly. Well, Christians have been known to be considered fanatic. (laughs) Sixth. Jesus' preeminent present task today is incrementally crushing Satan and sin. That's what's happening as he's sitting on the throne. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Remember Daniel 7, 14, which you can look at now. Now, some Christians seem to believe that Jesus' main task right now is simply interceding for us to the Father. The book of Hebrews does say that, and we can thank God for that. What an intercessor we have as he speaks to the Father. When we suffer great trials and tribulations, we appeal to the Son, our mediator. He goes to the Father on our behalf. This is a vital task, but it's not the only task. It's actually one task among a larger task. That larger task is ruling over the entire cosmos. Jesus is not waiting until he can come back to rule. Come on, Father, let me go. Come on, let me go. Let me go. Let me go down there so I can show who's really king. No, he's already the king. What he is waiting for is for the time when all of his enemies will be crushed under his feet. This rule began at the ascension. 2,000 years ago, Daniel sees four world empires as beasts. Out of the last empire, he sees the ten horns and the little horn, who were the Caesars, which grew out of the Roman Empire. They boast against God and persecute the people of God, but God then crushes them. And then in verse 22, we read, judgment was passed in favor of the saints. Remember the judgments that go on heaven? The father, as it were, says, I'm rendering my judgment now. And I'm going to judge in favor of my saints and not those godless pagans of the Roman Empire. The saints would be persecuted and martyred by Caesars like Nero and Domitian and Trajan and Diocletian. But God would crush them and the Roman Empire, and he did, and he did. We read in verse 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth trample it, and break it in pieces. But the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, is decimated in verse 11 by God's judgment. Most of you that have read history know that Rome was sacked by the barbarians, and the entire Roman Empire was commandeered by pagans. God kept his word. This Christian empire supplants other empires, and none other will supplant it. It's remarkable how many Christians today are so filled with fear Their fear is fueled by conspiracies. They're like trepidant about the United Nations. Talk a lot about 
the new world order, the one world order. And people say, Andrew, do you believe? Don't you believe in the one world order? And I say, yes, I do. And I know who's running it. (laughs) He's seated in the heavenlies. There will be no one world order. Daniel makes that clear in Daniel 2. No other nation, no other empire will supplant his kingdom. He's speaking of the Lord's kingdom that appears at the end of the four empires in Daniel 2.44. And he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream this way. I don't have, to go into, I don't have time to go into the details of that dream. Go back, please, and read it. And in the days of these kings, that is, the days of the kings of the ancient world, he's saying. By the way, those little words helped to destroy. When I was very young, I was a dispensationalist. Those little words in English helped destroy my dispensationalism. Daniel doesn't say Christ is going to return and crush in the future some shadowy antichrist. Maybe Mussolini. Oh, no, he was killed. Well, then, maybe maybe Hitler. No, he also was killed. Maybe Stalin. No, he also. Constantly having to revise who the antichrist is and so on. No, it says, in the days of these kings, the Lord will establish a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, And it shall stand forever. There is one world order, and it belongs to Jesus Christ. There have been no world empires after Rome, and will not be another. Even the, in many ways, great British empire was a great empire. It wasn't actually a world empire. There is a single cosmic empire. The empire of the ascended and ruling Jesus Christ. We read in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I'll read this just briefly because it's so powerful. You can turn there, but just listen. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fight linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. Not a physical sword. This is a vision, you understand. A vision of the victory, of the gospel. Not a physical sword. Islam tries to gain victory by a physical sword. This is the sword by which we gain victory. The word of God, under the power of the spirit of God. He should strike the nations, and he shall himself rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the interadvental ascended Lord of Judgment. Judgment in the Gospel. Do you know that the Gospel is a form of judgment? The Gospel slays God's enemies. That slays the old man. The Holy Spirit regenerates and brings them to submission and they trust in him. Yeah, the gospel is a message of peace and a message of divine warfare. He judged apostate Israel in AD 70. He judged pagan Rome. He judges all nations that dare defy him and refuse his grace. Not one of them survives. Not Rome, not the Chinese dynasties, not Nazi Germany, not the Soviet Union, not America, not Canada, if we do not repent of our apostasy. There's nothing special about the United States or Canada. 
So God, oh, I got to leave them alone. They're really important. No. No, God will send his judgment. He is, in my view, sending his judgment. Don't misunderstand. The Lord is a Lord of love. He reaches out his hand in grace again and again to sinners throughout the world. He'll save any who will come to him in simple, repentant faith. He does not delight to judge. He delights to save. He is long-suffering, but he is not ever suffering. And if individuals and nations persistently turn their back on him, he will pour out his judgment. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Oh, that frightens me. I wouldn't like to make God mad. Would you like to make God mad? The one who has every single resource in the entire cosmos at his disposal, you would like to make of him an enemy? Sinners should be trembling. Do not trifle with God's grace and his son. Why is the church so weak? And timid today? There are many reasons, of course. We think about all the false doctrine, lack of commitment to the Word of God, refusal to stand up, as our brother has said during the uh, COVID 19 tyranny uh, episode, uh, tyranny. <laughs> Pastors would rather be CEOs than shepherds. Accommodation to the surrounding culture, church membership that wants to be entertained with a Sunday laser light show, and smoke machines, rather than hear the word of God faithfully preached. There are many other reasons. One chief reason, I believe, however, and particularly among Bible-believing people, is that we are filled with rank unbelief. We read the prophecies and promises of Daniel 7, and they seem unreal to us. That could never be for our time. Obviously, it couldn't be. Look around. Yeah, that's what God says, doesn't he? Interpret my word by looking around at everything surrounding you, right? Isn't, didn't you read that in the Bible? That's true faith, isn't it? Pastors rarely preach on these texts. When they do, they push off the fulfillment until way into the future, our future, regardless of the obvious exegetical difficulties involved. They don't see Jesus Christ as presently king of kings. And Lord of Lords, in their unbelieving eyes, it just can't be that Jesus is presently reigning. They live by sight and not by faith. This is why the church's prayer life is so paltry and anorexic. I would urge you to read some of the prayers of our forefathers, particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries. Earlier, too, of course. Why don't we pray for God to fulfill his promises? Read the book by Ian Murray, The Puritan Hope. Would you like to know why there was such a great, massive missionary age in the 19th century? Was it perfect? Why the British Empire expanded? Was it perfect? By no means. But it basically did good things and helped nations wherever it went. Missionaries going all over the world. Why did that happen? Just for some reason, people just woke up and said, maybe we should send missionaries. No! They were fired by texts like this. The promises of the word of God for there to be great revival and great reformation. And that drove them to send missionaries around the world. Many saints in the Bible held God to his covenant word. Moses did. Gideon did. Habakkuk did. 
it's interesting when people pray like that, you notice God isn't offended. We say, well, if we, if we remonstrate with God and we argue with God, God will be very offended. Didn't seem to be in the Bible. Gideon basically argued with God. I'm calling you, you mighty man of valor. Kind of hiding. He's, who? Who? Is there somebody else here? Me? I'm calling you to lead the people to great victory. And then he says something fascinating. If this is true, where are all the promises? You promised us. And God didn't say, how dare you question my sovereignty? You know, God, you know, God liked that. You know why God liked that? Because he, he, took, he took God and his word seriously. God likes that. So feel free to get on your face before God and say, God, I don't understand. You said you would do this. Why aren't you doing it? God never forgets his promises. God is sometimes slow, but he is never late. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. That means, according to the metaphor, that when the church storms the gates of hell, Satan cannot resist. Why isn't the church more aggressive? Why aren't we praying, expecting God to bring in many sinners and believers to the church and that the kingdom will expand in the world? We say that we're believers, but we act as unbelievers. We live in unbelief. Jesus Christ is presently reigning. We should act as though he is. In the 1930s, France's intellectuals and schools and famous writers had the horrors of World War I fresh in their minds. They turned pacifist. It's a sad story. They turned out pacifism to their readers and listeners and students. France became a hotbed of defeatism. Winston Churchill wrote, France, though armed to the teeth, is pacifist to the core. It was no surprise that France folded like an unpegged tent in a windstorm when the Germans invaded. They weren't militarily weak. They had weakness of will, weakness of faith. Christians today are armed to the, te- armed to the teeth, but pacifists to the core. We have the prophecies and promises of the Word of God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the world-conquering gospel. We have God's holy law. Yet we act like timid slaves in the face of Satan's pitiful, poorly equipped army. Satan always wins by bluffing, making us think he has the strong hand. He does not have the strong hand. We are rightful heirs of the earth. Why do we live as though we're aliens here? Why do we apologize for declaring the gospel and the law? I recently heard a leader of a large fundamentalist university deliver a sermon. He used an interesting metaphor that I'll never forget because it was bad, not because it was good. He said, we're like citizens, we Christians are like citizens from another country living on an alien planet. And the only way we can survive here on earth, this evil world, is by a life support system connecting us to our home planet. 
We're like the astronauts that have hoses connected to heaven so that we can survive. This metaphor has it all wrong. Here's an alternative metaphor. I like this one better. Our king owns everything. But an alien king has subversively commandeered part of his domain, the earth, and set up a false kingdom. We're the king's citizen's army commissioned to expel the usurper. God has commissioned us to take back this territory, his territory. That's what the Great Commission is, the marching orders of the church. It's amazing how many people say that, evangelicals, but they don't really seem to believe it. Satan is a squatter. He and his minions sneaked onto God's property and erected little pup tents and stole some BB guns from Walmart and claimed to be taking over. What a pitiful, pitiful lot they are. I conclude with some stirring words about this conflict between imperial Rome, relevant to today, and Christianity. I hope you can get a wonderful book, Ethelbert Stauffer's Christ and the Caesars. He writes this. This state of war lasted for 300 years, a war not between church and state, but between emperor worship and the worship of Christ. Finally, the emperor gave in. 300 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the emperor Constantine the Great made peace with Christians and established the new Roman Empire under the sign of the cross in Constantinople. The only empire which has endured for a thousand years. Only after Constantine did the pagan world raise its head again under Julian the Apostate. His efforts broke down on the crossfire of public laughter, and tradition relates that the emperor died with these words on his lips, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. The Galilean conquered the Roman Empire, and he today conquers the world. I'd like to conclude by having Pastor Michael pray a prayer of dedication. Will you pray that God infuses us by the power of his spirit to press his kingdom? Father, we want to thank you for this marvelous truth.